So, <clears throat> this period of time is a period of uh, question and uh, answers. And in the last uh, two or three days, uh, written on the piece of pieces of paper here, a number of uh, questions. Had the opportunity, Rams, my local chaiwalas, to uh, read through the questions. I uh, found them rather challenging, so I decided to write my own. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the Buddhist books. I've got all the answers written out. And <laughs> so now I feel quite confident to speak. <laughs> all right. <coughs> 100 rupees in Bodhgaya. He started off at 250. <laughs> Probably other people bought them for five rupees, but anyway. All right. <laughs> First question Why don't you like metta practice? <laughs> Is it because. Um, True metta, metta meaning loving kindness, deep friendship is actually the word, deep friendship. Is it because only true deep friendship or metta, loving kindness, only comes from wisdom and insight? I find metta practice useful to dissolve aversion um, when no such insight is arising. With the uh, use of these kind of practices of uh, loving-kindness, of meditation, which emphasizes the heart and brings out, uh, hopefully out of us, uh, warmth and deep friendship. Ha as with any practices, it has uh, a clear strength to it. <coughs> we do need to cultivate deep friendship. We do need to extend that in every area and arena of life that does need to include those who are closest to us, the strangers that we meet, and the unfriendly as well. And that's a genuine power of the heart and mind. We also need to extend it to the creatures, the creatures in the air, on the ground, in the water, in the ground, and to our environment, to the world that we live. So the true and authentic application of deep friendship, of loving-kindness, is a huge challenge to us and as the person reports in his or her note here <coughs> that sometimes it's a powerful antidote to the, dis the dissolution of aversion, of reaction. Sometimes it's rather hard to make that shift <coughs> from anger, negativity, aversion to deep friendship, deep kindness, deep connectedness. On the questionable side, and I think it needs to be sustained, there are two aspects of it which I uh, don't feel uh, comfortable uh, with. One of those uh, two aspects uh, of it is, I feel it can become a mask. It can very easily, all too easily, uh, cover up unpleasant, painful experiences, negativity and aversion. And rather being a counter force to it is a, a layer that goes above it, 
So there's kindness, which is cov covering up ne negativity, resentment, uh, control issues, reactivity. But there's a mask of superficiality, a layer across it called kindness. And in the Buddhist world, this is incredibly common, I have to say. In the Buddhist, in the Buddhist world, there's a, a, a lot of uh, sweetness and niceness. And as one person uh, uh, said very accurately to me uh, this morning, um, a lot of Buddhist bullshit around. <laughs> and metta and loving kindness, and some of it gets expressed up here, I have to say. And uh, let alone from you lot. And uh, so sometimes this is where the covering up uh, takes place. And I think we ha have to be careful with that. The other equal concern that I have is that one easily wishes to appear loving and, and appear nice and appear uh, kind. And the danger of that is that it begins to uh, dissolve and undermine the importance of the critical faculty. And one finds this uh, significantly so, both uh, in the East and the West. And in the fear of sounding judgmental or in the fear of sounding negative, the, it ends up being unwilling to be uh, critical and to use that voice of criticism, which is quite different in quality and clarity from what being judgmental is. And so not surprisingly, when this is not understood and explored, one has some of the Buddhist countries in the world have some of the worst track records on human rights. Just go next door to Burma. Just go and see what's happened in Nepal. See what's happened in this country which has a long Buddhist tradition. Look at the military juntas that ruled in um, uh, Thailand. Look at the medieval conditions that poor Buddhists had to live in uh, Tibet for centuries. Look at what's going on in Sri Lanka, etc. And this, and this appearance of being nice and, and kind has undermined the critical faculties and therefore the kindness and friendship and deep connection has to be addressed and has to accompany what the Four Noble Truths are about. There is suffering and there is the resolution uh, of it. So I do want to encourage you, of course, to use these meta-practices to cultivate and uh, develop, them, develop them, not at the expense of criticism and concern, not at the expense of seeing things uh, clearly and be very vigilant, you don't just cover up uh, other feelings which you're, you're afraid to look at through the metta. This happens. Two questions uh, rather related here. What is my, what, sorry, what is awareness? How in my Meditation, can I be in a state of awareness? What do I need to do or to be? And the question, a number of them rather close together here. What can observe the mind? It takes a little, with both language and experience, then it does need to be a meeting of these two together here. In Dharma language, Mind, the field of the mind, including the, uh, the heart and the feelings, is, this is important here, something which can be given attention to. If we could not give attention to, we could not change. It could not be changed. We wouldn't even know it. So, just as in this world that we live in, there are a variety of 
areas which you and I can give attention to. We can give attention to the world around us, clearly. can influence it, etc. It also influences us, so to speak. We can also give attention to the inner life. The division between inner life and outer life is conceptual. There's no real division. It's part of the deception. (coughs) So, as a human being, I can bring consciousness, or attention, whatever word you and I may wish to use, to that which is going on within. That which is going on within is the object of interest. So each day you come and you report your experiences. You say, I'm feeling this, thinking about this. I've been experiencing this. So the awareness, or the attention, or consciousness, rather interchangeable words, or mindfulness, rather interchangeable here, is mindful of what is taking place, is cognizant of what is taking place. Sometimes, as you know, we kind of feel the consciousness is pulled into it. Then the I arises. With the pressures, the tensions, the ego that go with it. So, part of the element of our steadying ourselves and being present is just to see this is what's going on. One doesn't have to add, in me. (coughs) This is what's going on. As a human being, I didn't ex- invite this experience. I didn't choose it. I didn't walk into the meditation hall and say, right now, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to have such a big blissful buzz, you can't imagine. <laughs> and one doesn't sit, walk into the meditation hall to sit and say, okay, now I'm ready for the terror. <laughs> you can... You can throw everything you like at me, I'm all ready because I've been doing my mindful walking. <laughs> and now I can come in here and sit here, and all hell can break loose, it doesn't matter because I'm, I'm ready, please come. Do you think the inner life is going to take a scrap of notice of your choice? Of your choice to say, I'm going to have the biggest experience of my whole life in this meditation. I think the mind is going to say, oh right, okay. <laughs> So, the idea we carry of choice is ego. It's all ego. We don't know. You don't even know what's going to happen, not only from one sitting to the next, but what's going to happen between the, or walking or standing or whatever, from the beginning or the middle or the end, we don't know. Life arises, events arise, inner life, so-called, arises because the conditions are there. And there's both questions asked, a very important and primary question, what is it that's observing this? What, is it this? what is this awareness that keeps revealing this object called a state of mind, called a range of feelings, called a lot of thoughts, called a deep experience, called a realisation? <coughs> it keeps revealing we can share, we can talk about it, we can communicate it. And then, the great uh, truth of, uh, of the Buddhist communication to us. That which you can observe, called an experience, that which you can attend to, is not who you are. 
How could it be? When we look at, put attention to whatever, a pair of glasses, the gong, we don't say, oh, that's me. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Some might do. They <laughs> <laughs> say, well, I'm one with everything. But these fell off their supermarket ch trolley in childhood. So, <coughs> the object called the feelings and the thoughts and the states of mind and what takes place is what's arising. It's not who I am. How could it be? It's just arising in the con dependent conditions. It's something extraordinary to understand that. And that will leave any caring human being wanting to find out who he or she is well, who am I? Because I've all along, I've believed that I am this body, which I give attention to, but the body is the object. I am all these feelings and states of mind and thoughts. Maybe that's not me either. And then we've got nowhere to turn because we've assumed heart, mind and body is who I am. And then we're resting somewhere. Then we have to see. I want to know how we can be truly happy in this world when there is so much hate and suffering and pain. Right outside the temple there are children who can't walk, who are freezing in the cold while we're sitting here. Isn't being happy a denial of the truth? Aren't we lying to ourselves? This thought, of course, uh, understandably can arise uh, a great deal. And in sometimes the difficulty and the hardship of our experiences, even though you look at another level, we say, God, it's rather small change compared with just what's going on on the other side of the gate. Not even that far. What's going on much closer to us than that. To give you a very small uh, example of what I what I mean. Our, one of our uh, uh, lovely cooks, just a year or two ago, who I've known since he was a teenager, he's been cooking for us since he was a, a teenager, really wanted to have a glimpse in this village of Budgaya, of the Dalai Lama. Many people want to see him. And he climbed up onto a wall to take a look. And rather unfortunately, he was in that sad situation of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And some Tibetan police bodyguards pulled him off the wall and beat him with a bamboo cane, breaking his uh, hip, damaging his leg, and in enormous pain, he had to crawl home to the village, just on the other side of the ro ro road here, about half a kilometre from where, where he was. This is a man in his mid to late thirties. His brother had died. He had four children. He looked after his brother's children as well. Minimal living conditions. Caroline and I have uh, uh, been to his home on a couple of occasions. And we asked him, what happened? A year ago we asked him, what, what happened? 
two years ago rather, what, what happened? And he explained how it was that uh, was he was bed-bound and with a large uh, plaster and we did uh, uh, what we could. And after some months, he died. I wrote a letter to the Tibetan government in exile saying what I'd been told and when Caroline and I went back to see uh, his wife last January, I asked her again what happened. And she told exactly the same story. And I have no reason whatsoever in any way to disbelieve what, uh, what I've been told. So I wrote a, a letter and made a number of requests in that letter. And one of the requests that I uh, made was that I needed to find out who did this. I'm not asking for any punishment but to make a real apology for the loss of this man's life and the terrible consequences to his family and for some compensation to be given. I received a, a letter, a reply, I have the letter, reply from the Tibetan uh, government and, as these things are, re refusing to acknowledge the truth of what took place. Of course, I couldn't prove it. The man has died and there's nothing that one can do very, very uh, directly. Of course, it wasn't reported uh, at the time. Who does one report these things to? So sometimes these terrible events are going on very, very close at hand. And then we can feel inside of ourselves. Why should we change? Why should we transform? Why should we try to find happiness? What we need to remember is where there's greed, hate, confusion and delusion, it puts an enormous degree of pressure on other people. Where when we're unhappy, when we're in despair, when we're anxious, when we're selfish and greedy, all that puts pressure on other people. And there's a certain kind, I think, of ethic here. That we work on ourselves and bring, to bring more happiness into the world. Not to bring just happiness for me, me, <coughs> me and all that wretched egotism but to bring more happiness into the world, to bring more love into the world, because it's desperate in need of it. And that's a great challenge and responsibility. And if it comes with a deep sense of connection, which is the very fabric and the foundation of the Dharma, then it brings compassion. It will bring its own action. But if we're living in negativity and reactivity, if we're unhappy, we're no good for anybody, and we're certainly no good for ourselves. And that's part of the challenge. It's a teaching which embraces wisdom and it embraces compassion. And therefore, our inner freedom, our clarity, is invaluable for this Mother Earth. And finally, with that too, there's more than an ethic involved in this. I can't see things clearly when I'm in greed, anger, unhappy and suffering. I can't see things clearly. I'm looking at life through distorted perceptions, through coloured sunglasses and thinking that's what it's like out there. I want to live, I want to see how things really are, I go really deep into that. And therefore I want to be free from anything which obstructs it, called greed, hate and delusion. Just for <coughs> one, even if it's only one glimpse in this whole life to see what, how things really are, it would be worth it. It would be worth it for one glimpse. As the Buddha said, just to see once, clearly, is better than to live for a hundred years. Absolutely true.
That's why we practice. This one, uh, yeah. I, before I read, I want to assume that the person, she or he, whoever wrote the good note, read with their own eyes. <coughs> You'll see what I mean. The Lama of the Wisdom Center of Budgaya wrote that the tsunami killed all the fishermen because they killed fish for a living. How much trust can we give to such nonsense Buddhists or whatever? I found that at least that view at least as scary as the tsunami itself. Isn't all of this karma stuff <coughs> an easy way out to explain and rationalize <coughs> events which are beyond our control? Whether it's at the personal level or on a larger scale. I, I make the earlier point here, if I may, that the view, if it's not seen when one's own eyes, could be hearsay and may not have been written at all. Gossip line is merciless in Budgai. But I've heard stupid things said and written. So, well, well, could, well, could, well could be. We listen, I feel the sentiments of the person. And in our listening or in our reading, if something doesn't resonate deeply with us, such as this uh, extraordinary judgment on fishermen struggling to make uh, a living. And it doesn't sit when we hear these views about past karma and must have, uh, because they've been killing fish or whatever. Then just regard it as just more Buddhist nonsense. Back to the bullshit. And when I read the note, the, the thought that came into my mind, this, what was written here is actually, what was said here was actually written, maybe, to go to the other extreme, maybe the dear old Lama was a fish in his last life and he got res he's still resenting being caught. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if one's going to go to one absurdity, why can't Christopher go to the other? <laughs> Some Mahayanis brothers and sisters will say I'll go to hell for saying that. But, anyway. <laughs> but there again, sometimes I'd rather be in the company of people I enjoy in hell than get, go to heaven with some of those people who get there. So anyway. <laughs> 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 
if every effect has its cause, seems everything is karma. If so, where is the freedom? It's a good question, and it needs some contemplation on. So I don't say in speaking to you that Christopher or anybody else for that matter can just provide the answer. But just explore the question. I hope the good person who asked the question asked it with some feeling behind it. Because it needs awareness, it needs attention too. Let me explain a little bit what I mean here. Karma literally means action, activity. But there's a very specific me- uh, meaning. Its meaning is related very directly to the unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory influences of yesterday or yesteryear upon the present. This is karma. So there's this kind of residue of movement and influences and intentions. And when it lands in the present moment, it's called the fruit of karma. And so sometimes, we see that. We see that in our experiences, in our meditation, because we're allowing ourselves to be closer to our heart, mind and body. And we experience the impact, the fruition of old habits and old patterns and old conditioning or whatever, landing in the present moment. And it would look like, it could appear like, in every single moment there is karma. Of course there isn't. Sometimes life is unfolding naturally for us. We're not in the shadows or under the sway of the past. There isn't any pressure uh, upon us from yesterday or yesteryear. And the very fact that we can be clear about this movement, we can talk about the past and its relationship to the present and see those influences called cause and effect or however you and I might describe them. The very element here, this is important, the very element of being able to see clearly does show to us the potential is there, the seed is there for a genuine insight, emancipation from karma. If I couldn't see it, I couldn't be free from it. The fact that I can see it, I can experience it, I can relate to it, I can communicate about it, I can share within my with our teachers, my therapists, with my friends, whoever it might be, shows that one is able as a human being to watch and notice the movement of past into present, called karma. And sometimes that karma, the movement of it, the force of it, the influence of it, begins to lose its power. Sometimes you and I can look back on the past and say, my gosh, that which was influencing me, that which was so difficult for me, that fear, that jealousy, that possessiveness, that anger, that confusion, that desire, whatever it might be. It's lost its grip over me. It doesn't affect me like it used to. We're coming out of the potency of karma. The wonder of the teachings are, and the precious beauty of them is, one can be utterly free from karma. that one can put one's hands on one's heart and genuinely say, I don't experience, I don't feel 
as a human being any unsatisfactory influences of the past on my present. I don't see anything of yesterday which is a troublesome for today. Because one's looked and seen the emptiness of it all. One lives one's life and there's no leaning towards feeling unhappy or worrying or anxiety or being uh, afraid. One's seen the emptiness of it. (coughs) When the Buddha speaks of the resolution of suffering as one good person was asking, or seeing the end of uh, karma. It's not a vague, abstract, spiritually theoretical thing. It's our potential as a human being. And so sometimes we look and we say, my gosh. It was clear, bright, steady, present, grounded. Don't feel any influence in this moment, in this experience, or in this time of anything problematic on the present. Karma arises when the conditions are there for it to arise and it does not arise when the conditions are not there for it to arise. And so in the course of a day, sometimes it arises and sometimes it doesn't. If it was in every single moment, there's no liberation because it's a permanent, eternal thing and there could never be freedom from it. Sometimes the uh, questions do overlap a a little bit. When I'm here, I wish I was on another retreat. (laughs) 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 You're not alone. (laughs) But if I was there, I wish I was here. (laughs) This is the case with all aspects in my life. (laughs) Do you have any suggestions how to stop this. (laughs) 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 Shoot oneself. (laughs) (laughs) Very bad joke. (laughs) Talking about karma for a moment, I read, didn't you? Sometimes we, 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 we read, read things. I don't know if you take an interest in these things. but Have you heard of a program called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Do you have that in there? Uh, <laughs> well, I had the very bad karma of watching it one night. <laughs> <laughs> look, uh, look. And what I found most shocking about watching this program <coughs> really shocking was that I could answer some of the questions <laughs> and I thought how on earth Christopher does your mind know what the answers are where did it, where, what is it that got stored up in here which I had no interest in any of these questions and I've got the answers I found it just extraordinary that the inner life can hold this and actually uh, answer and it was in- 
incredible relief not to be able to answer some. <laughs> and then I was, I was reading on karma. You've heard of, um, uh, what's his name? Brad Pitt. <laughs> he said, in Buddhism, I read it, it must be true, I read it in the paper. <laughs> he, he said, he said, he said, in Buddhism, there are three kinds of very bad karma. One is to be rich, the other is to be famous, and the other is to be beautiful. In Buddhism, he said, this is very bad uh, karma. Now, and I thought, poor devil. <laughs> because he and his missus, who have now, if you haven't read the news, have now um, separated. She was in a program called Friends, but apparently they're not friends. <laughs> there. So sometimes we look and we, we have this picture and this image, oh, how lucky they are to be rich to be famous and to be beautiful and we put all of these projections there and we create this culture this crazy culture of celebrity hardly knowing what the lifestyle is like hardly knowing what's going on behind those barbed wire fences and that opulent imprisonment that they're living in and the people who gather around these places uh, like visitors to the zoo <laughs> ho hoping to get a, a, a glimpse of, of them. It's, it, it's, it's a bizarre world. You know, I, I don't know uh, Brad Pitt. I, I know his brother, Cess. <laughs> so, very, very, very bad joke, I apologise. So. <laughs> All right. If English is your second language, forget it. It's just <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're going from bad to worse. I better back, get back to the questions. <laughs> the other day we talked about this is in a one to one uh, this inner void and how there are so many escapes. Then how can someone act at all? A very lovely question here. What is it? What is uh, action? What are we? Avoiding. It's nice. I never thought of that before. Avoiding. You can meditate on this one for a couple of lifetimes. We were talking, in, I was talking this morning with you, <coughs> that in the exploration of the inner life and all of its, the journey, if I may say, when I was uh, uh, on the road from 67 to uh, 1970, three years on the road, and it's a privilege of, uh, like many of you here, uh, travelling and then wishing to make that, uh, that uh, inner journey with all the, the depth. And it's not that you and I and our humanity can stay deep all the time. We have to allow for the flow of consciousness from the gross to the subtle and, uh, and its uh, movement. Then sometimes we look and we say, what is it that I'm filling my life up with? What is it that I'm filling my mind up with? And seems sometimes we've got a, a kind of desperate need to have something going on all the time inside of us. And that may show itself through the various contractions that you and I experience. It may show itself in an incessant need to 
want to talk to others or to keep writing or to keep doing. To feel occupied, to feel busy. We desperately, we want to feel to be somebody. And therefore the self is engaged in this constant effort to affirm itself. To feel to be special. And there's one person in one of the small uh, groups. He said, he said, with so many people here, I don't feel special. So I asked, well, how many should we get rid of so that you can <laughs> feel special, etc.? Would, would instead of 130, would 65 be helpful? 55? Or would you like four teachers and just you, we'll send the rest home? <laughs> Whatever. So sometimes it is wished, indeed, to, to, to feel special. The self wants to be unique, be particular in some way or other. And then we start to look at, all that, look at all of that. And then as the person was reporting to me in the one-to-one, very uh, uh, sweetly and insightfully, sometimes we get deep enough and we think it's all about an escape from some kind of void inside of us. Now if we're not doing and we're not occupied and we're not preoccupied, come back, we can't see anything there of who I am because my whole identity is tied up with doing. Tied up with being somebody trying to be somebody, or hoping I will be somebody in some way or, or other. And it isn't easy when the, f- the feeling of emptiness in, in this respect, in this way, feeling of touching a place which is kind of void of anything and feeling to be nobody, to actually rest with it. Maybe that which we most resist is actually that which is most important. And if we stop being afraid of being nobody, and if we stop being afraid of, of uh, the terror of feeling not special, and actually begin to have a different kind of relationship to it, something starts to shift in the consciousness. We actually have no interest in really being somebody. We have no interest in being special, no interest in kind of pursuing another's attention just to confirm ourselves. And something starts to move and to shift and open itself up in a, an extraordinary way. And then the way of being in the world is noticeably different because we've learned, we've discovered, we've um, come to a recognition and appreciation of our emptiness. And there's no aversion to it. It's, wow, I'm nobody. And one just starts to love it. Something goes on. So that which sometimes we're most reactive to is actually the best. The best. The best. What is the Dharmic view on sex? Hmm. And, I've never heard this word before, and different (coughs) sexualities. Oh, T's, I think, because sometimes the spelling is different. What is the Dharma view on sex? 
Well, you've probably all transcended this consideration by now. I don't know. All right. Two or three important considerations here. First one, very much with intention. In the uh, second link of the Eightfold Path, that contribution to uh, living, to use the Buddha's words here, a noble life, one wishes to address and attend to every area of our life. And one extraordinarily uh, important area is the whole area around uh, sexuality. And one of the things I notice, if I may say, that quite often, including um, my, my poor self in this, as much as others, that it doesn't get attended to enough on retreats. <laughs> I know that can be interpreted in lots of ways. <laughs> I've got all in mind. <laughs> all right. <coughs> and so, some of you who have been around the scene for a while, you will be told at the beginning of the uh, retreat to keep the five uh, ethics. The third one is not engaging in any sexual abuse, causing any sexual harm, sexual misconduct, whatever the language may, may be. And that shows a, a care a sensitivity and a respect to uh, others. And in the duration of the time that we uh, uh, hear, there's the inner work taking place, and we don't wish to um, violate or invade uh, in such situ situations. All this shows an acts of kindness and, uh, and presence there. <coughs> Sometimes, <coughs> what it leads to and this is the influence, I think, of the, the past, almost, I don't like to say this too much, but the kind of the karma of the tradition, let's put it like that. That there is a view within religion, in general, I'm talking the generality, I include Buddhism in here, that has an uncomfortable relationship around sexuality. It shows itself in the male hierarchy, it shows itself in the division of men and women. Some of you will have been in retreats or in monasteries where all the men are on one side, all the women are on the other, other, other side, which I always recommend my gay friends to go to those retreats. Another lifetime in the hell realm coming up. <laughs> and, and the arising or the discomfort that may come, that it may emerge out of this, is that somehow, because of retreats or monasteries, or because of the rabbis and the priests, and the monks, etc., that something, uh, sexuality and sexual intimacy and making love has something to do with desire, 
and desire is unhealthy and desire has to get rid of and if we were more, de more developed as human beings, if we were more advanced, then we'd have no interest in uh, making love and the desire would uh, drop away and our genitals would all go limp. <laughs> You know what I mean. <laughs> and it concerns me, this kind of, uh, as a man, it concerns me. Let me know. <laughs> and somehow needs to be an, un an understanding uh, energy and an awareness and a respect and a sensitivity that in sharing, in being together, when two people of the same gender, of different uh, gender, have love and have uh, sexual uh, contact and intimacy, it doesn't mean to say in any way there's anything called desire. Desire in Dharma language is always that which is unsatisfactory, which puts uh, pressure, which is unhealthy and is problematic. This is called desire. The word is tanha. Craving, wanting, pursuing, running after, must-have. This is all in the form of desire. One doesn't need any of that for, for love. One doesn't need any of that for um, uh, making love. But one certainly needs awareness, and sensitivity, respect and connectedness. And as I say, a few concerns, <coughs> I'm sure others do here as well, about some of the views which are uh, expressed. Yeah. It happens... It happens amongst the uh, dedicated yogis and meditators and it also happens in the monasteries as well. And what one uh, notices and can see, can see that one has to be a little vigilant in this area. And what I mean by that, for some who do a lot of rather serious and focused and dedicated sitting meditation more, specific, more specifically, do have to be vigilant about not ending up sitting on their feelings. Not exploring. Not going deep with them. Not letting the passion of life flow through and the love of life th flow through. But sitting on them. And there's a real difference, a qualitative difference, between being with and exploring and opening up to and sitting on. And if one sits on those uh, feelings, in this case uh, sexual uh, feelings, it tends to make for... Serious Buddhists, it tends to lend, it lend itself to moralizing about the uh, sexual feelings and connections of uh, other men and uh, women, and it kind of intimates that something is not resolved. And unfortunately, in the Buddhist world, lay world as well as much as uh, sometimes in the monasteries, there's a kind of view which emerges uh, th there that uh, of discomfort around sexuality. Why should it be? Why should there be? We are men and women on the earth and with affection and love and <coughs> respect and connection that also can be part of the flow of life. One of the aspects of all of this as well is <coughs> that just because one is a human being and because one has uh, sexuality and sexual uh, energies which uh, flow it doesn't necessarily mean as we know only too well that
that therefore the outcome of that, the flow of that, there's a relationship, there's intimacy, there's connectedness, etc. Then, with the same vitalities and the same uh, energies, and therefore some people, not by choice, but just by the rhythm of life, are not in a sexual relationship. And I have many, many uh, conversations with uh, women and men on this uh, uh, theme. Does it have to be a problem? Can't the passion of life, the, the romance of life, the, the uh, eros of life go beyond and embrace much more than the personal relationship? And sometimes the wish or the wanting for a personal, sexual, intimate uh, relationship simply isn't happening. It isn't <coughs> happening. And when it isn't happening, does it mean to say it's the death of eros? The death of love, the death of a romantic adventure with life. And at times, no matter what age we are, we can have put so much, as I said, focus onto one area of the romantic life, of uh, the life of Eros, and forget, hey, it's much bigger than just two people being together. And all of this needs in our feeling life a more uh, receptivity and more. Uh, opening up to and the sangha of uh, men and women we we need to break out of this uh, model of trying to be in relationship and then being in relationship and thinking oh if I wasn't in a relationship I could do more practice if I wasn't in a relationship I could go to Burma or, or, or travel longer all this complexity and dualism tied up with being in a relationship and not being in a relationship nothing to do with it just another duality that we get caught up in. So similarly, sometimes in the meditations themselves, <coughs> one sitting, walking, standing, and some, sometimes some extraordinary fantasies uh, uh, come through, and some poor devil in the hall is on the receiving end of it, but she or he doesn't know. <laughs> no. The image in the picture can be strong. But we once again want to just to, to feel this energy, to feel this feeling and let it thro flow through. And I was reporting in just one of the small groups that when I was a monk in uh, Wat China, the monastery at the end of the rice paddy, one of the old monks who was 93 years of age, rather upright in being, in posture through years and years of dedicated uh, sitting and, and, and the he uh, walked uh, in that way as well. And so some of the younger monks, and I was like in my mid-twenties, we gathered around him one evening just to <coughs> talk with him, with the translator, to listen to some of his experiences of these, uh, of these years. And we said to him, Long Po, Long Po means elder brother. Long Po, you're 93. Not much of a future to look forward to, is there? <laughs> So, when your mind wanders, <coughs> what, does, what, 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 what do you think about? <laughs> he looked the young monks in the eye, he said, sex. <laughs> <laughs> monks went, oh, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
साधु साधु वेल सेड वेल सेड and that kind of uh, sense and feeling and sensitivity with uh, life and connection uh, with it so the life and its flow and the energy is uh, of it not to be afraid not to be afraid of them and if we have the wisdom we won't wish to violate the space of another we won't be invasive we'll be very respectful and sometimes i know for myself and i'm sure you do as well sometimes we can love a person and deeply love another human being and feel a deep connection as a man towards a, a woman and one just acknowledges that feeling of love acknowledges that feeling of uh, deep uh, connection and <coughs> for whole varieties of reasons and circumstances no wish to make a personal story out of it just one loves the person the person doesn't even know just, just loves deeply and connected and romantically with eros and it's never said never spoken and sometimes you and i in our travels in our world and meet in contact with friends sometimes it's just necessary to love without anything else but just the love and all this is part of a healthy i feel an important uh, relationship because if 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 this isn't resolved if this isn't uh, clear will uh, end up there's already whispers of it in the the west uh, and they're only too well of what i call the buddhist taliban <laughs> haven't resolved areas can't feel uh, understand all of this uh, and, and can end up with the sangha being run by a married mafia i promise you in which <laughs> things have to be one way and we have to learn we have to grow we're human beings we have to learn and sometimes we have to learn and make mistakes we have to learn and and things are difficult but we learn we learn through our humanity we learn through our experience that's how we learn and this area needs a whole area of opening up for us as, as much as any 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 of the others oh, nice bell all right couple of bits more and then we call it a day. Ooh, five o'clock, my God. All right. The, there's always one question. It's always in there. <laughs> I know it off by heart. I think the same person is writing it every year. <laughs> <laughs> and the question is, Christopher, are you enlightened? This is the question. Lovely question. Uh, I'll ring the bell for that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is this? Uh, oh, thank you. We <laughs> <laughs> we'll catch it again. <laughs> what is this? I enlightened. What is that? Am I, I, I in, in, enlightened? What is this? This I. What matters is not of I. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we? Mm-hmm.